Gumption. Defined as initiative, aggressiveness, resourcefulness, courage, spunk, guts, common sense, and shrewdness. Welcome to the podcast. This is Stories of Gumption with your host, Ryan Lee. Welcome to the third episode of Stories of Gumption podcast. I'm again, your host, Ryan Lee, and uh, we are having conversations with entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and just really, really impressive people. And uh, we still have a sponsor, believe it or not. Super excited about this. So we are sponsored by Open Gate Farmstead. A stone's throw away from the mighty Osable River, Open Gates Farmstead is the first generation farm specializing in free range poultry, pasture raised pork, and seasonal produce. The farm is run using a simple principle happy animals make the healthiest and tastiest product. You will find our chickens eating bugs on pasture, our pigs enjoying a mud bath or some acorns, and if you're lucky, the geese will be enjoying the pond. To watch and experience the Open Gate Farmstead journey, check out their YouTube page, Open Gate Farmstead, or catch up with them on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to them on social media to try the Farm Fresh difference. And for a special offer to Gumption listeners, they are taking a dollar off your first order of eggs. I personally buy their eggs. I think they're great. I think they taste a lot better. I notice the difference. So consider that. Okay, reach out to them on social media and uh, get a buck off your first order of eggs. Today, super, super excited about this one. Um, we are with Forrest Edwards. Uh, he's an accountant for Alexander Ed- Edwards and Company. He's a fellow Rotarian, an entrepreneur, and arguably most importantly to me, a fellow golfer. Forrest, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me here today. Absolutely, man. Super pumped to have you here. You've got an incredible story. And as we were talking about this podcast, uh, there's a lot that I didn't know about you. And right. uh, <laughs> it, it's awesome. So I want to give you an opportunity to tell us your gumption story. You know, I know you as an accountant. And that wasn't your first big, successful job. Absolutely not. So, so you grew up in the North Country, Northern yep. New York, grew and Plattsburgh, uh, class of two thousand, PHS. Yep. And then you, and then you wanted to get out of Plattsburgh. Yes, I absolutely wanted to leave the area. Just wanted to experience a big city, something different. Um, I had some family down in Central Florida, some cousins and aunts and uncles, and uh, took the big leap and moved at seventeen years old to a small town right outside of Orlando. It was called DeBerry, Florida. Oh wow. Nice. So you were looking to get out of Plattsburgh and you found a career doing... So yeah, I started to go to school. Let me back up and talk a little bit more about my history. So my grandfather uh, was Plattsburgh's first CPA, moved here around 1940 um, and started a firm here in Plattsburgh. Um, My father, a CPA as well, had been working for just over 45 years here in Plattsburgh and Guess what they wanted me to be when <laughs> when I graduated high school and graduated <laughs> college. So yeah, right. I was kind of already slated like you're going to be an accountant and this is going to be your business and this is this yep. is what you're going to your your life's going to be. So I moved down to Florida. Um, started in school for accounting. I think I maybe did like a semester. Then I switched to criminal justice. It was really passionate about me to be a 
uh, juvenile probation officer. Uh, it was something I definitely wanted to do and that I had a lot of passion for. Um, and went to school, started doing that. Uh, while in school, I took a part-time job selling cars at a uh, very small, it was like a buy here, pay here. It was called JD Buy Rider. I don't even know if they're still in business. Oh, wow. I, uh, started there and was doing that and attending school uh, full-time for criminal justice. Um, about halfway through my semester in that, it, I started selling cars. <laughs> it's just a, <laughs> something that came very easy to me. And I got my first washout check is what they call it in the business. And it was commissions from the prior month. And I think I got something like $3,000. It was in one check, which was the most money I'd ever made in my life at that point. And I was like, okay, criminal justice is not for me. I'm dropping out of school. I literally stopped going to classes and just stayed and worked full time in the car business. Um, worked wow. there for a little while. Yeah. I worked at the uh, that dealer for a little while and then just made a jump to another bigger franchise dealer, a Ford dealer down there. Um, did well in it. I mean, I had a different mindset. I mean, the small town, North country, like I was not, I was in Orlando. I mean, this is a pretty competitive car market. I mean, you like the, the stuff you hear about, I mean, some of like the dealerships they were doing, you know, like crazy stuff to get people to buy cars. I mean, absolutely high pressure sales. Like you we're going to throw your trade in keys on the roof of our building and tell them, tell you we lost them. So that way you can't get your trade back and you have to buy a car from us. These things were happening in that industry. So, oh my God. <laughs> yes. Dude. I won't name the names of the dealers <laughs> oh that did that. That absolutely nuts. happened. It was in the news. I mean, it absolutely happened. And I was just this small town boy. I mean, I guess Plattsburgh around here is the big city, but yeah. moving down to a, a bigger city, I still had the small town mentality. And, you know, I just really just pushed through. I mean, I just did what I knew, which was treat people right, um, answer any questions they may have and just provide good service to them. Just make them feel comfortable and happy about their purchase. Most people buying a car is the biggest purchase they're going to make in their life. A lot of people don't get to own a home. Um, some people are lifetime renters and buying a car is the biggest purchase. And also one of the most emotional purchases, I think, because a lot of people identify themselves with the car that they drive. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually got pretty good at selling cars. I did. And I sold for a few years and then, um, it was kind of, you know, it, you, it, the car business and sales, it's like you're getting huge checks, small checks. And it's like there's times where you're just having to budget on $5,000 a week. And there's times you have to budget on $500 a week. So it, it, those ebbs and flows in, in actual sales was just very tough. And I was starting a family at that time. My wife had uh, just uh, found out when she was pregnant with my son. Awesome. And... I was like, I need to become a manager. But scary? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I need to become a manager so I can get a salary. That was what my whole yeah. my whole goal was at that time. And I uh, went and applied at a, uh, it was a smaller dealer. It wasn't, as, uh, it wasn't a franchise dealer. It was an independent dealer. Um, but he gave me a shot at being a finance manager, um, which basically, if I don't know if anybody knows, a finance manager is the person who you sign the contracts with, the person who tries to offer you uh, ancillary products, yep. insurance warranties, yep. and the person who also deals with the bank and gets your contract bought by the bank. Because not always when you sign a contract in a car dealership are you approved by a bank to buy a car. Right, so right. There's some there's some other negotiating going on on that end as well. All right, well, so this is interesting, okay? Because in my limited scope, and I mean, we've known each other for a few years now. Mm -hmm. I met you through Rotary, which yep. is a great connection. But I've always thought, okay, Forrest Edwards, he's part of a family business. This dude knows what he's doing. 
but his family business is accounting. I never would have thought <laughs> this guy is a badass at sales. So tell me how you went about selling a car. Like, how were you different? What was, how did you hustle? How did you not hustle? What was your approach? Tell me about that. So, I'm curious. Being very young, and I was probably 19, I want to say, um, when I first started in the car business. I did a couple of odd man jobs before I started that, um, but I think I was 19. And a lot of the people I worked with were probably 40 to 60, um, had been in the car business their whole life. Um, and I just had a different train of thought, I guess. They would stand there, wait for the cars to come to them, and, you know, basically it was a big hangout group. I kind of, like, put myself on an island, and it was like, I, my, my main goal to be there was not to hang out and talk to people and, and make friends. My main goal was to to make money. How I thought of is every person that come in there, comes into the dealership, has some money of mine in their pocket. How do I get it out of their pocket? How do I get them to buy a car from me so that way I can make a commission? Yeah. And so my, my thought, I, I stood by the entrance. I literally stood by the entrance, waited cars come in. I'd wave to them and smile and be their first point of contact coming in. And then sometimes I'd walk to meet them at their car and have a chat with them then. Um, that, I guess, wasn't the way to do it. I mean, I didn't know any better, but... So all the salesmen would laugh at me and make fun of me and tell me, oh, Poppy, you don't need to stand out in front of the dealership. They're, com- they're going to come to us. And that wasn't just my way of doing it. It was just a yeah. different, different way. And eventually, you know, when I started becoming the best salesman there, they would be like, well, what, what is this kid doing? Like, why is this kid doing beating us at, at, at our own game? You know, so it was definitely strange. But I just put in the hard work. And, you know, and I always treated every customer as if they were the most important person in front of me. Um, yeah, that- everyone, it, I mean, people may would come in, maybe they didn't have the best credit, maybe they didn't have the bo- best income, but if you treated everybody as if they were coming in there to buy a Ferrari, they, they like it and they'll buy from you. And they'll, ref- mm-hmm. the best thing about it is when you make a happy customer, they'll refer their friends, their family and they'll come back and they'll come back. And, yep. Yep. And that, I think that's a good lesson for anybody in sales or fundraising or anything Absolutely. like that. Yeah. It's, it's about creating value around the interaction not just a transaction, right? Yes, absolutely. It was. It, I tried to make an experience out of it, and it was tough. So living in Central Florida, um, I want to say sixty-five percent or seventy-five percent of the people that came in were of Hispanic background and spoke Spanish. Me, white boy from Plattsburgh, yeah, didn't speak a word of English, word of Spanish. Um, but I re- quickly realized that that market share was just so huge. Those people were just buying cars that wow. I had to either a learn the language, which I have learned some. I'm not fluent, but I can definitely sell a car in Spanish. No um, way. You could sell a car in Spanish. <laughs> Absolutely. See. <laughs> wow. That's and that's impressive. What I also did was I got kind of smart about it and I made friends with some some of the salesmen there and I would so it's I guess we can go into the business a little bit. So you when you, when so, someone comes up to the dealer it's called an up. Okay. It's your it's your up. It's your your person. So Okay. You can take that up and that's your whole deal. Um, but I, I quickly learned, I was smart about it, is if I realized that person spoke Spanish, I would refer them to my friend who spoke Spanish and I would automatically get half a deal because it was ah. my customer. So I would refer them over to him, get a half deal there, and then I'd try to find someone that I could sell a car to. So I'd be working one and a half deals when everyone else was gotcha. working one or maybe a half of one of mine. Wow. Okay, so tell me, tell me more about how you approach the actual interaction with a new customer. I'm, I'm, I'm your new customer. You're standing by the door and I, you know, I can respect a, a, a confident 
salesperson, but sometimes, you know, we all kind of get that, like you go into a retail store or you walk in and then there's the guy like waiting for you and you're, you feel that at least for me, sometimes yep. I'm like, Oh shoot, he saw me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm a sales guy by profession, right? I I'm in commercial insurance, but even for me as a customer, I walk into the, you know, Best Buy or Target or something and there's that dude standing there and he's like, Hey, what you looking to buy? Can I help you find it? Can yeah. I, you know, and I think the way you go about that has to be the right way. How'd you go about that whole interaction? So we actually went through a lot of sales training at one of the dealers I worked there. I went through the Zig Ziglar training, the Grant Cardone training, and a lot of that stuff definitely helped. It definitely helped you to, there's a lot of psychological tricks, I think, with the Grant Cardone uh, method. Yep. Um, like scheduling people for 15 minute increments because the people tend to remember 15 minute increments better. Yeah. So I used a lot of that, but for me, the, the most important thing was I'd walk up to somebody, eye contact, uh, handshake, a firm handshake, and just try to answer their questions. Don't try to start selling them something. The people will sell themselves and you just need to be there to provide answers to their questions they may have. And if you don't know the answer, it's okay to say, I don't know, but I can find that out for you. A lot of times people will try to BS their way into something. And a lot of times these customers are coming in there and they know more about the car than you do. They've been researching this car online yes. and they're trying, they're going to ask you questions to see if you're a truthful person. And if, if they, if you ask a question and they're saying, Oh, what's the uh, gas mileage of this vehicle? And you, you just throw out a number 15 miles per gallon. Well, they've lo already looked and they know it's 12. They know. they know what it is. They're trying to see if you're an honest person. So honesty was number one in my book. Um, and just treating everyone the same, just like and that, and that, that works all the way up through treating the, the janitor and the CEO the same way, treating yep. people the same and as if they have value. Cause maybe they just went to another dealer and people threw them out of there cause they have a 500 beacon score and couldn't get finance. Yeah. But everyone they're part of my language, but we had a, there's a saying, there's an ass for every seat. So yeah, <laughs> they may yeah. not get the car, but they'll, they'll get a car. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I, I reflect on uh, a, an article I read on LinkedIn um, recently. It, it was kind of articulating exactly what you just did, which is uh, there, there was a, uh, a guy who wrote the article talking about his experience at an uh, outdoor goods uh, store. And he was going in to buy a, um, a backpacking pack, right? And he'd done his research, like you said, and he, he, uh, he was looking at them. And he had uh, one of the sales staff come over and before he even understood what this writer, this guy, this customer was looking for, he started spewing out all the benefits and the features of all these different packs and why this one is the best and this one's the best and you should buy this one. And he was so turned off by that because he, the guy didn't show any interest in him as a customer and what he was looking to accomplish that day. He left the store. A few weeks later, goes back to the store. Different salesperson's there. And the guy, just like you mentioned, shows up and he says, Hey, what you looking for? What can I help you with? And he was like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm still kind of thinking to himself. I'm still living this experience of that guy who tried to shove something down my throat that he didn't even know what I wanted. And he basically said, Hey, if you have any questions let me know. So he asked him a question about something and the salesperson basically just used that opportunity to provide value when it was requested or in the theme of, Hey, I want to help you solve a problem rather than force something down your, right. your throat. 
if you if you let them, the people will sell themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So, man, that's impressive. You. So tell me how you you progressed. How long did you sell cars? How did you did you end up getting that management gig? Yeah. Might- so. <laughs> not many people know this. And now that I'm out of the car business, I guess I don't need to carry the facade anymore. But so I probably worked in sales for close to eight months before I went from a green pea is what they call it. Wet behind the ears yep. <laughs> to actually managing, being a finance manager and managing a dealership. So eight months. Yeah. I, I moved up quickly. <laughs> wow. I just, I mean, it was just in me. I said, I need to become this. This is what I need to do. So you became a finance manager Yes. And um, eventually you decided, okay, I'm moving on to something else. Yeah, so this was that, that was for me. I mean, I moved on. I worked a few different dealers, uh, some franchise, mainly in, independent. And I, I got with an independent that was really eager to grow. Um, they had three locations in Orlando. And within two years, we grew to eight locations, um, which was fun and scary. I learned so much. And... I was one of their better finance managers at their dealers. And it's at that point where they're like, listen, we're going to give you your own dealer. One of our new dealers will be your dealer. You'll be the general manager and you'll hire your own staff and your own uh, salesmen, sales managers. Uh, we had a little mechanic shop there. Wow. And it was like, so I was, I want to say 22 at that time. And I was managing close to 30 people, which was just weird for me. But wow. I, I, <laughs> It was it was definitely weird for me, but I it was kind of like the people I had I had hired under me, a lot of them I handpicked, like certain people that would come in there and I just knew it like this guy has what it, he's never sold cars before, but this guy has a passion for cars. I'm gonna teach him everything I know so that way he can work under me and be, you know, basically what what I I was trying to create more of me yeah. in, in other salesmen yeah. that would eventually and some of these people like they started out with me and it's their career right now like do you think sales is something that you have to have innate in you or can it be taught I think the well it's a it's a tough question because yeah. what, what I what I when I think about it I I know people that had no sales background whatsoever they're passionate about cars and they were twenty car a month guys all day long, um, so I don't think you have to know sales I think if you are passionate about it and you are able to answer the questions and help somebody it's more more customer service than sales mm-hmm. the, the sales are going to come. Um, I think the biggest thing is it's the getting out of your shell and walking up to, which was the hardest for me, walking up to a random person you've never met in your life and try to sell them a product or sell them a car at that point. Um, so for me, so let's rewind back to JD Byrider. We had a whole little sales pitch and this little binder was like a flip chart and it, it went through, it explained who we were, what we were doing, how we could help you, how we could finance you. Cause it was a buy here, pay here. We sold the cars on our lots and financed them ourselves. Yep. And it was this flip chart. And I remember the first time doing it and I'm just, just nervous. I'd never had, I mean, I, I had worked, uh, before that I worked in an oil change place, just changing oil. So I wasn't, yep. there wasn't a whole lot of customer interaction there. Some, but, uh, I remember my hands shaking. My palms were sweaty. I was so nervous <laughs> trying to tell this guy this this chart that I had spent weeks there studying and memorizing each one and trying to memorize a pitch for each chart you flipped over. And it just, it was probably a train wreck. Uh, I don't remember if I sold that person a car, but <laughs> it was like the most forced, weirdest thing you had to do. I, I think like a the, lot of people The finance company that. would be like, did you do a flip chart with them? And like, I, I started selling there 
And I was selling a lot of cars there, probably 20 to 30 a month. And I would stop doing the flip charts. I went away from it completely. Yeah. I just sold the car and told them about what we did, but didn't use the flip chart. But the finance manager would come back, did you use the, do the flip chart? And I'd be like, yeah. And they're like, well, I asked them and they didn't, you didn't do it. And so I'd have to go back and do the flip chart with them before I could get them financed for a car. But Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. See, I'm a firm believer that um, – I was curious on your perspective of that, but I'm a firm believer that anybody who's willing to put in the, the effort Absolutely. And, and wants it, is motivated, can find a lot of happiness – and a lot of success in sales. I think you grow up, and especially I was one of these kids that grew up in high school, and I was like, man, I um, I do not want to be in sales. I think of sales as like this. Yeah, it was like you know, a negative. It's a stereotype. But you know what? Sales is life. Yeah. It sounds deep to say that right now, and I'm kind of taking a digression. But like, if you are going into a job interview that you really want, you're going in to sell yourself. Absolutely. If you uh, are doing your own research on a product, you're selling yourself on on that product. Maybe that's not a great example, but there's there's a lot of times in your life where whether you're fundraising for a nonprofit that you're you're working to to support, you're um, you're trying to sell yourself in a job interview, uh, you are giving a presentation, yeah. uh, maybe you're a researcher and you need funding for your your research, you are sales is a is a life skill. Yeah, it's like when they told us in high school, like math is going to be in everything you do. They should have told us sales is going to be in everything you do. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, definitely, I like that you talked about the job interview process because everyone in life is going to have to go through unless they start their own business a job interview process. Exactly. And that's you're really selling yourself, and that's the first, I think, of your career, the first sales attempt you're going to have. Really. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, the other thing about learning sales, if you're and you know, you said peeling off the sh- the shell. I think is what you said, or um, breaking out of your shell, maybe. Yes. Or, oh, absolutely. Uh, so, for me, pushing your comfort zone. Yes, man. The way I had to push my comfort zone was going from being uh, a director in the Boy Scouts, where it was very fundraising, relationship based. We had Steve Frederick on the podcast last episode. Lo- talked a lot about relationship fundraising, but. Pivoting from that, where you're using relationships to raise money, I went to uh, ETS Staffing and Recruiting as a branch manager, and this was my first real exposure to cold calling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what's your What's your thoughts on cold calling? You ever done it? Did you do uh, a lot of it? Never do it? Tell me about so, it. So, like... The first sales job I had, I was kind of like, I don't know if it was like a, a joke they were playing on me, but they literally told me to look in the phone book and just go through and start calling people to sell them cars. And I didn't ever sell anybody a car that way. <laughs> I did do it, um, but it just didn't seem to work for me. Um, there is value in it, I, th- I think, in using it as a point to a point of contact to meet somebody in person. Um, but definitely it was it was tough for me i let a lot of a lot of people hang up and, or curse you out right over the phone and yeah <laughs> that's yeah. that what is <clears throat> what do you think the objective of cold calling should be i know there's t- if you just google cold calling or you look on linkedin for articles on how to better yourself with this or whether it's even effective or what people's perspectives are you get a lot of different stuff i bet and i think there's a lot of there's a big push in sales right now to leverage social media and digital contact right. but i'm I don't know. Maybe it's my industry, but I think cold calling 
is old school and old school is still relevant to a lot of business owners. But yeah. what is your thought? I'm calling businesses, right, versus individuals. If I was getting a cold call as an individual cost, potential customer, I feel like that might feel different. Yeah, I see. I mean, if you're using it, I think, as a set-off point to maybe schedule, get it, let's, hey, let's get a cup of coffee. I'd like to meet exactly. you. And we can go over what our, our, our businesses are and how I could help you or how you, how you could help me or vice versa, whatever you're looking to, to get out of the relationship. Exactly. So you mentioned in one of the previous conversations we had that after you kind of pivoted away from the car business, you did have experience with cold calling. Is yeah, it? unfortunately. So, <laughs> so I uh, was working in the car business for years. This is probably like, so we had the Washington Mutual run on the bank. Um, we had the mortgage crisis. And, and during that time, it was almost like, so before that, I could get anybody in a car that had over 500 Beacon score in a job. You could get finance from a bank, no problems. Um, and then it was like, it seemed like almost like this, someone had turned the faucet off of this easy credit. Um, and it was like almost impossible to get somebody a car loan at that time. Wow. So I was working uh, at that dealership still as a general manager, making a good salary. And they came to me during this whole crisis and said, Hey, unfortunately, we, you know, basically what I took from it is they grew too quick and they couldn't afford me and they weren't going to pay me my salary anymore. They just wanted to pay me a commission on all the cars that were sold. So to me at that time, it just wasn't, it wasn't what something I wanted to do. Um, I had a friend of mine that was working in, it was called was the weirdest thing, loan modifications. So this was during the mortgage crisis. People were defaulting like crazy, especially in Orlando on their mortgages well, world or nationwide, but yeah. people were defaulting and our job was to call them and try to get them to re work with their bank and modify the loans to a point where that the person could afford to pay for their mortgage still and keep them in their homes. Um, so yeah, a friend of mine was doing great there doing that. And I was like, yeah, I'll give this a try. <laughs> and I went in my first day. It was like just the strangest thing. Like, well, first of all, I walk in and the, the guy running the whole place, I had just taken his job at another dealership. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> he was a finance manager at another dealership and I had taken his job literally from me. And now all of a sudden he is running the show and I was the new guy there. So there's strike one. Strike one. Yeah. <laughs> strike two. Uh, they hand me, uh, they said, here, you're going to do cold calling because you don't have a customer base yet of people. And they hand me this printout, which I could assume might have been the white pages. I don't know. But it's a printout, name, addresses, and phone numbers. Um, when I started to look at somehow, I don't know if it was purposely, I got Compton, California. So my job was to cold call all of Col Compton, California and try to... Uh, tell these people to modify their loan with us. Wow. <laughs> and it was probably the the funniest. I mean, because people were just cursing me out. How did you get my number? What do you even call it? I mean, it was just, you can just imagine what I went through. And that job lasted maybe a week and I quit. <laughs> Strike three, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> so I may be a little jaded on cold calling because of that experience, but. Sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, not to keep hitting the dead horse or the, um, cold calling but i think it's all about how you approach it and i also think it's what is the what is the purpose of the call the purpose of your cold calls were to get some sort of buying commitment or right like, and everyone thought and it was a scam. this person Everybody has never met scam. you seen you and here you know in my world i'm calling within sort of this adirondack region you know vermont champlain valley northern new york bubble yeah i can say i live 
and pay taxes in the same community. You know, it's a little just bit a more di- clout than some yeah, shady mortgage it's like, thing. Hey, man, like, do you want to go to the coffee shop down the street? Because I know, like, that's pretty close to both of us. Uh, you know, it's it's a different conversation. But yeah, I think I would really struggle with that cold calling too. Yeah. That would be tough. So you you eventually decided. So yeah. This was 2008, 9-ish. You've run the mill with ran, sales. Yes. You had a lot of success. and then I, you... I did. I, I mean, I had great success, but I was also working 80-plus hours a week, which can take a toll. I mean, money is one thing. Money comes and goes, but time is something you can never replace. I missed a lot of time with my uh, family with, with, in their younger mm. years. Um, my wife, God bless her, did so much work, and I just wasn't there. I mean, I would leave in the morning at 7 o'clock and come home. Sometime between nine and eleven every night. That was wow. it. I had yeah. I had I had six days a week I worked. I was off on Sundays always. But it, it was just a taxing on on I think our, our relationship and our family, you know, dynamics. Um so at that same time my dad uh came down to Florida to visit. Um we went on vacation and like uh, he had offered me, Hey, you know, I explained him the whole scenario, what was going on. Um and he was like, Why don't you come back? move back to Plattsburgh, move with your family and go to school for accounting and work for me at the office. And it was obviously going to be a huge change. I mean, culture shock for, for my family. They lived in warm climates all the time and they were moving them to Plattsburgh, New York. Yeah. And also just a huge change. in I mean, going from, you know, the financial aspect of it, going from making very good money to making a, I mean, a good salary, but just, Barely starting enough, over. barely starting over. Absolutely. I was got to do the math, but I would, I was say 28, maybe 29. I don't know exactly, but, um, so yeah, starting over at 29, uh, going to college at 29, which was just weird and working full time. And so I would, I had classes during the day, especially with accounting and, and some of those that go into Plattsburgh State, like you have to take the classes when they're available. Right. So I would leave from from work. I mean, obviously it was, I was so grateful that my dad gave me that time and actually even paid me to go to college. And nice. I, I was uh, in class, I'd show up though with a shirt and tie and I was 10, 15 years older than everyone and everyone thought I was the professor. They'd be like, oh, and I would go sit down next to them and they'd be like, oh no, he's a student just like me. Um, but it was kind of a joke. Like it was cause they were, they were like, why do you always like, no one understood. Why do you always, you're just really serious about this business and this accounting major. You dress up with a shirt and tie. I said, no, man, I have a full-time job. I, I come yeah. here. I was like, I don't have time to go home and change. Yeah. So. Wow. So what, you know, you navigated that you had the support of your family, which Absolutely. is huge. Uh, both your dad and your immediate family. Yep. That's awesome. How, what, what advice after living through that would you give to listeners about navigating a major career move? Because I, I mean, I've gone through a couple major career moves, you know, and, and people, I tell people my story and they're like, wow, how'd you figure that out? And I, honestly, for me, it was like, it just felt right. I don't know what your experience was or what advice you might give on, on navigating that. Cause people between in their twenties are often changing careers multiple times before they find what it is that they're going to guess. I mean, don't, st- don't get discouraged by anything. Um, just because you're taking a deviation from your long-term plan. Say you got this long-term plan, like I want to graduate and I want to be a doctor. Um, but in between your bachelor's and going to whatever medical school, um, you start working a job doing something else. 
just because you're deviating from your your main plan doesn't mean you can get you can't get back on track mm. and, and go towards your goal. I mean, I took a almost a decade deviation, but I'm yeah I'm back on the plan that that was set out for me and what what really is is going to be beneficial for my family and really something I'm really good at. I mean, I yeah crazy enough, I didn't do the greatest in high school, but I did have the highest grade in business class and I actually got the business award uh, in high school. So it's no something that's always come easy to me. Uh, accounting business, uh, something I grew up with. So it's definitely where I'm at, where I'm supposed to be in life right now. Absolutely. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I'd like to pivot now towards that expertise that you have and are continuing to develop. It's, um, I mean, financial literacy in general, I think is something that a lot of young people need more training and education on. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Um, so I got a little story, I guess I could tell on that. So I was actually, well, I was 17 when I moved to Florida. Um, hadn't turned 18 yet. Did a few months after I moved down there. Um, but it was like, uh, I think singular wireless was it? If they're even still around. I, don't I know, remember so. them. And yeah. <laughs> I was trying to get my first cell phone. You know, the, the Nokia had come out with snake on it and I was like, I need to have a cell phone. Uh, so I went in there at 18 and maybe it was a few months over 18 and I'm like, I had no idea what was going on. I'm like, can I get a cell phone? And they're like, yeah, let's give me your social, da, 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 da. And I go through the whole application process. And the lady's like floored. She's like looking at me like I'd give her something wrong. She's like, you have really good credit. And I was like, I don't know that I have any credit. What does little, that mean? Yeah, exactly. Little did I know my dad. How old had, were my you? Dad, uh, it just turned 18. But oh, since wow. I was, yeah. when I was younger, my dad put a credit card in my name as an authorized user. Mm-hmm. So what that did was I started to build my, my credit profile. And so when I was 18, I already had like a, I don't remember what it was, but seven, seven, 800 beacon score. And she's like, you have great credit. You could get a credit card anywhere you want. This lady, I didn't remember this to this day. Cause that was this. <laughs> she, and I was like, okay, I didn't know what that meant. But so I left this, I got my cell phone. I don't remember what, what the deal was, but I, uh, went out and probably opened up a couple of credit cards right after that and wow. yep. started using them. Definitely not the right way. Hmm. So I think if someone would have taught me uh, credit utilization taught, taught me about what credit actually is, uh, what goes into your, what, you know, repayments, like how revolving credit works, how compounding interest works. Those things, if, if I think if I would have been taught those in high school, like I think high school needs to offer a credit slash financial literacy class that tells people how to a balance a checkbook, B know what your, what, what, what does it take to get a good credit score? And, and, and also like finance tips, like, hmm you have this much income, you need to allocate some to housing, some to food, some to um, utilities or whatever it is, but, and then you and allocate some to personal. Um, but some, some sort of plan in teaching the youth some financial literacy before they're even out there in, in, in college. And I know it was a huge problem, like with credit card companies were targeting college kids. And it was like, yep. it's become, I think, illegal now. I believe there's some sort of protections now for college kids to get into debt that they didn't understand at the time when they were signing the paperwork. Yep. I had a, uh, a senior uh, economics teacher in high school. Um, shout out to Mr. Rabidou. Uh I don't think this was at all part of his curriculum, but he did go into credit cards briefly, financial planning briefly. And I remember that resonating with me because he basically put, the fear of credit cards in all of us. It's a great fear to have. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I still have credit cards now, but you, you know, learn you, to master them. You now learn, you learn how to use them to your advantage versus, 
you know, because not having a credit card at all can also can also hurt you. Right. So talk to the listeners a little bit about the factors that affect credit score. So I think for like the the number one, I think it's like a 30% weight on your credit score is your credit utilization. That's like how much of your available credit from revolving loans are, or do you have available to be used? So they say the magic number is below 30%. As long as you don't run a balance that is more than 30% of your total credit limit, um, then it doesn't have a negative, a, a negative uh, effect on your credit score. Um, there is a sweet spot too. And then also the other, the, the weird part is if you absolutely have no balances and you don't carry a balance within your cards, it also has not as much, much of, but also has a negative impact on your credit score. It's so crazy. it's like this, uh, fair Isaac FICO, whatever, there's a hundred different models out there to determine a score. A good portion of it is your credit utilization and how smart and how well you use credit cards. Number two, I would say is your payment history. Do you pay your bills on time? Um, I don't know if everyone knows this, but paying your car payment two days late is not does not go on your credit. What goes on your credit is anytime you pay a, a installment loan, credit card, any type of loan that reports to a credit bureau more than thirty days late, that's when it reports on your credit bureau. Interesting. And every time, and that payment history, I think, is like a twenty-four month rolling window. So those time, those payments you miss, and maybe you did get thirty days behind on your car, but you got caught up. Those payments will eventually fall off your bureau. Um, but I want to say it's like a two, two or three years they can of your payment history they can see, and then they'll take that percentage, look at delinquent payments versus payments made on time, and they'll come up with a percentage of payments made on time. Um, you want to have a hundred percent, obviously, but that is a is a, is a big portion. Um, wow. The other, the other, the third, I I would say, I mean, you've got credit utilization, delinquency, and which which I would also include in that delinquency collections and judgments or anything like that, mm-hmm. any type of tax liens, those would all file under, file under there. But having too many inquiries, like going out and every time someone offers you a credit card at the register to save ten percent, like TJ Maxx or any of these other companies do. Every time you do that and you fill the application, a um, inquiry goes on your credit, which I believe stays on for around three years or so. And those inquiries, I mean, if you make them a lot in one time period, I've heard that they only count as one. But if you make them sporadically and every few months you're going and applying for different credit cards, that can drastically remove, uh, reduce your credit score as well. Yeah. And, and, and retail is all about trying to get you Absolutely. to buy their, or apply for their credit card. Yep. Every time you do that, just to see... That's exactly. If you just see, I mean, get the card or not, just just them running your credit, it will reduce your credit score. That's crazy. What about the number of accounts? That's you have? another one too. Yeah, forget about that. So number in like let's say flavor of accounts because you have so on your credit bureau you have installment loans. That's like your mortgage, your car loan, your personal loan, your student loans. Those are rated as I. You have R loans, which are revolving loans. That's your credit cards, line of credits, things like that. Then you have what's called other loans, which sometimes it, I've seen personal loans get thrown in there. Deposit-related loans. Like if you go to your bank and you give them $5,000 in cash, or not cash, but you give them $5,000 and then they turn around and loan you $5,000, like a secured loan, that, mm-hmm. that would go into other. So you want to have the, a, a good mix of accounts, like have a, a good number of accounts open. And a good mix of them between installment. Sorry, the other not your your installments are not your mortgage. Your mortgages are M. There's an M type. Interesting. So mortgages are separate. Installment, other, and revolving. Interesting. So break it down for me a little bit, just and and the listeners, sort of the 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 classifications of 
I've heard the, the phrase good debt versus bad debt. Is there such a thing? Um, yeah, I mean, so mortgages are great to have. I mean, it, when you first start your mortgage, it's going to be a negative impact. Your score will probably drop 30, 40 points just because the fact that you're getting a 200 or 100,000 yeah, whatever, whatever it is put on your credit. So that will drop you. But that that effect tends to go away after two or three months of paying your mortgage on time. Mm-hmm. Um, but mortgages are great to have because it really not only does it is it's it's a huge amount of money and it's a huge monthly commitment that shows on because every time you pay rent it doesn't show up on your credit bureau you could be the best or the worst rent payer in the world it has no effect on your credit which i don't think i think is a, is a inequality in our, in our system it should yeah just be, just for owning shouldn't give you a, they should also have rent being reported to the credit bureau but it's unfortunately not that's really interesting actually yeah. because you know it brings the next question that i have for you to mind how does someone who maybe is renting just graduated or in college trying to, you know, they're trying to build a credit score and build a a nest egg of financial stability in their own way. How do they go about that? Um, What's the best way to build your credit as a young person? Do you think there is a lot of things online that you can do? There's a lot of research you can do. Nerd wallets and actually pretty good one. They actually have some pretty good advice on there. Um, Opening up a credit karma account, they can, push you in the right they're definitely going to try to push you to apply for a lot of things mm-hmm. but if you take that aspect the sales aspect out of it and just use their advice that they're giving you they'll give you some pretty decent pointers on how to improve your score um things you can do um there's tons of professionals out there and, and especially in mortgage professionals because they can see the value in it that will actually work and do help help with your credit bureau i know um matt craig of uh bank ba- of england mortgage. bank of england yeah yep. he does uh some credit repair and credit work. And he'll kind of partner along with you. Cause I know, I don't know what they charge if it's free or if they have a charge for it, but mm. you think about it, it's like, you're almost farming your own clients. Cause you know, if you help this person that their main goal is to get a mortgage and you know, if you help this person get their credit to where it is, they're hundred percent coming to you for a mortgage. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not to go too far in a digression here, but I think he's, he's doing classes, uh, at SUNY Plattsburgh, like adulting uh, financial literacy 101 or something. He is. Yeah, that's great. It's good. That's good. That's what students need. So uh, again, so now we talked about the young person trying to build credit. Uh, You know, our generation, the you know, approaching middle age, I guess. uh, What are some of the things that we need to be mindful of to ensure we maintain or continue to build good credit? Right. Like, like with anything, like with the story I told about the dealer that grew too quick, I think not growing too quick and not trying to get to your goals too quick and setting out goals and attaining them and and checking them off your list, not going like, Oh, I need to have a mortgage. I need to buy a house. I need to do it within this amount of time period, take baby steps to get there. And then once you've got there and and to maintain it, I think the best thing to do is not deviate from the plan. Um, You're going to, you're paying your mortgage is great. You're, you're just paid off your car and you drove by and saw that shiny new boat or that uh, ATV or quad and you get into another loan with that. So I think just trying to get all these things that you can get, because now you have good credit. If you want to go in and buy that brand new Kawasaki ZX10, you can, and you can probably pay like a hundred bucks a month for it. Um, But I think making smart decisions and, Knowing living within your means can definitely is definitely a good thing. <laughs> you know, that's a good point, actually, because I think our world is our financial world. And like, you know, we're constantly bombarded with opportunities to, frankly, really screw up our credit. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's like how our economy and, and like a lot of corporations are set up. But like 
I feel like everything is presented in a monthly so easy a yes. monthly only payment of, yeah exactly a monthly payment for how long though and and so you know could you speak to that and like absolutely the, the you know making decisions based on a monthly budget versus a total cost right so uh, we'll go right back to so at, at some point in the car business i worked at a kawasaki dealer and we were selling kawasaki's so zx10 that's why i said it um you could finance with Kawasaki Credit, which was actually a credit card. It went on your credit score as a credit card. You could finance a brand new ten, twelve thousand dollar motorcycle, and the payment. Well, I mean, the, the, if you didn't pay attention, the interest rate was like twenty nine percent, but the payment was so low because they, I mean, typical credit card repayment is three percent of your balance. They want three percent of your balance every month. These specials that they were running, you could get them, and you could get a repayment period of ninety nine dollars a month. But if you're not paying attention, of your ninety nine dollars a month. $85 of it is going to interest. You're not reducing your balance at all. So you're going to pay for this Kawasaki for 10 to 12 years. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. At the $100 repayment, which is what they get you. Oh, it's only $100 a month. You know, you, you, you're still, you're paying $12,000 plus interest. I mean, in compounding into your monthly budget, I don't know who said <laughs> it, but was it Einstein compounding interest is one of the most confounding things to man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that would apply back to the car industry in general, yeah, right? Yeah. That's that's the you see the ads on TV all the time, Leasing you know. Versus you know get get a get a uh, a vehicle for 100 200 bucks a month. But yep. and some of those aren't aren't bad. Some some of those are they just are kind of shady in what they're disclosing. Some those $200 a month, yeah, it's a lease. You're never going to own the car. It's renting the vehicle. Mm. Which leases I don't have any problem with leases. I think they definitely have their place. Um and they're they're a great tool if you use them. Um but in no way are you going to own that car for $200 a month. You're going to own it. You're going to use it for that time period. And then when your lease is over, you're going to have to buy it or turn it back in. Now, when you buy a car, like I, Lauren, my wife and mm -hmm. I both own our cars. Um, hers is paid off. Mine, I still have a, a payment on it. Um, getting close to paying that sucker off though. It's a great feeling. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, I've, my family and we've always talked, we've always owned cars, but they say buying a car is the worst investment. Absolutely. It you, is. But, it's the fastest depreciating asset you can ever own. But never is a buying a car a financial investment ever. A good is, one. It, ever. Yeah. So like we also bought our house, right? And that is something that we have. Right. We, and we and that's going to appreciate in value. We know we've already made money on our house. Yeah. We know we, if we sold it tomorrow, we would make we Absolutely. Would be, and I think that was also part of the strategy of buying within our means versus buying this house that's super luxurious, but maybe being upside down on it. Um, but what are you? Yeah. So, I mean, you, we kind of talked about it a little bit already, but I mean, buying versus leasing, is there an advantage to leasing because I, you're not investing in something that's depreciating or... I guess it, you, for leasing, the, the whole idea, because I have a lot of friends that ask me this question, and I love leasing for businesses. It's easier. It's uh, great. You can write off the payment, let's say, or a portion of the payment if it's not 100% business use. Um, whereas paying in, in that full amount you pay every month is what is, is going to be either expensed or personal mm -hmm. um, versus when you buy a car and you're paying back that, your only deduction of buying the, of the car is, is, is interest for business standpoint. Um, either one you still can depreciate, but, uh, so for businesses, leases absolutely make sense because you, you don't need to own, unless you're planning a long term with it and 
for individuals, I always look at it to the point where I tell them, what is your, like, what is your history? Do you typically own cars and drive them to the wheels fall off? Or do you like to have a new car every few years? Because if you like to have a new car every few years, leasing is definitely the, the way to go for you. If you're the type of person that either A, heavily modifies their cars like I do, <laughs> or B, drives them to the wheels fall off, then it's best just to buy the car outright because then you actually have ownership rights. Whereas in with a lease, if you change mm. anything on that vehicle, you're going to be uh, required to put it back to factory mm-hmm. or potentially have to buy it like you've modified it you've you've mm-hmm. changed what it what it was um and same goes with damage too you know you, they give you a little chart and i think it's like bigger than a quarter you have to pay for dents burns uh scratches like if you damage the vehicle more than what they consider uh acceptable use of it then you're gonna have to pay for it at the end of or or buy it <laughs> interesting so it's can it's double-edged it's great for getting a low payment and being able to afford a nicer car than what you mm-hmm. may be able to afford if you financed it over a five or six year term um but there's always going to be that balloon payment hanging over your head well i don't know if they call it that anymore but your your lease buyout at the end hanging yep. over your head what are you going to do at this point? And they, they do a pretty good job, I think, actuarial science have determined what the value is going to be, and they know what the value is going to be at the at your lease end, and they're pretty close on. So sometimes buying at that point is good, sometimes turning it back in and going again. Like mm. Once you get in with a system like if you do like through, say you lease your cars through Honda, and they require that $2,000 down payment at the beginning, once you're in with them, you don't have to keep paying that down payment. You just can lease another vehicle. And not pay nice. the down payment and just pick nice. up, start paying the lease payment. Yeah, it's not a highly advertised thing, but it, most most car manufacturers do that. That's good. Good point of discussion. I'm glad we talked about that. Uh, the other big piece of financial literacy that young people need to learn, and quite honestly, most people could probably improve on. I would say balancing a checkbook. <laughs> yeah, it's very important. Talk to me about that. Um, knowing what's going in and going out, that's, that's hugely important. Knowing if your bank's making mistakes because they definitely do. Um, and if they make a, a mistake in, in, in your favor, they're going to correct it quick and take their money back. Vice versa. Either way, if they take too much money out, they made a mistake. You want to, you want to be on top of that and know that also it's, it's a good idea to give for, for cash flow. looking at, you know, you, your bank balance may say you have $2,000 in the bank, but you have five or six checks that you mailed out that are still outstanding. Mm. So without knowing if these people are cashing and what your true balance is, it, you got to reconcile your bank check bank book every month. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's important. And I think I probably could improve with that, but I certainly I could too. I think yeah, <laughs> we probably all could, but I think um, at least my bank in particular uh, does a pretty good job with keeping the online banking updated. But even so I've learned that, um, that's not always super accurate. Yeah. Like, like it's behind. It's There's a, usually a little delay with yep. some things. And there's you got- a lag in it in reporting. And then there's also like you you can write a check for all the balance in your checkbook at the, the time. And if it, until it clears the bank, your bank's going to think the money's still there. They don't know all the checks you're writing. Exactly. So as long as you – I mean if, you, if you're not going to sit down and reconcile your checkbook every month, as long as you have a firm idea of what's going in and what's going out and, and you're – constantly i mean i unfortunately probably do it three times a day checking your bank account yeah. and seeing what transactions are happening then you're just not going to know and you're going to miss stuff yeah i mean and there is fraud like i it happened to me a few years back uh through my community bank debit card somehow got the number got skimmed from somewhere and i luckily i had been right there and there i caught it before they did 
Uh, someone had bought gas at two a gas station and then one across the street in Brooklyn, and it was like a fifty and a fifty dollar transaction. Um, wow. They were, yeah. So they, I caught it before Community Bank did, and I was not liable for any of the purchases. But I was just like, I went on. I'm like, what? Brooklyn? No, I definitely didn't do this. And called them right away, and they put a stop on it before anything else could happen. And and that's just a you know because you were diligent about making sure you were balancing or at least reviewing your account on a regular basis. Don't just spend mindlessly. Yes. That's that's very important. Is there a recommended amount? I know uh, accounting and retirement and saving is is a little bit different, but is there a recommended amount that you would say everybody should try and save? Uh, I think they like a lot of people go by the rule of thumb, 10%, 10% I think would be your, your minimum really. Okay. If you can save 10% of your paycheck every week or every month or however it may be, you get paid. Um, that I mean, that'll, that'll, so you make $50,000 a year. You're saving $5,000 a year. Um, yeah, that's good. That yeah, adds up. That adds up. Uh, if you can do more, you can do more. There's super savers out there. People that save 30% of their paycheck. Mm. That's great. Mm. Um, make sure you're not, you know, if with that savings, you, you want to turn, I don't know if anybody's like done much, turn that, that those assets into a income producing asset, whether it be you invest in a small business and you make yourself do that. That's an idea. Uh, whether you invest in the stock market and you know, well, that hasn't been too great lately, but there's some pretty secure ones. If you, if you just go and put it in a savings account, there's discover right now is offering 2% on a savings account, which is pretty high, especially for a savings account. Yeah. For a savings account. Exactly. Uh, money markets are out there. Make sure you're not just stuffing that money under your mattress. That's because if you're not earning income on your assets, they're depreciating due to the time value of money, due to the fact that in the future, things are going to cost more. A thousand dollars today needs to be $5,000 20 years yep. from now. You, you need to, to make sure your, your money is increasing in value or if, because if it's not, it's decreasing in value, even if you're holding it in cash. Absolutely decreasing in value. That's the classic. Uh, if you watch Parks and Rec, the the concept of Ron Swanson burying his gold. <laughs> his gold is depreciating, <laughs> technically, right? Versus investing it. Uh, that's funny. So um, this has been great, uh, Forrest. I've I've learned a lot personally. I hope the listeners have learned a lot. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to plug uh, Alexander Edwards and company. How people can get in touch with you? Or certainly. So we are pretty visible on the web um you could search alexander's and company you could search accountants plattsburgh you could search cpas plattsburgh any of those things you should find us on the first page our website is www.aecocpas.com on our website there's ways you can get in contact with us Um, there's ways you can schedule appointments on our website Um, we also have social media Um, we're not too heavy but we're on linkedin um facebook Twitter, um, some, just to name a few. Um, you could find us by searching on any of those. You could come to our location. where Our street address is 47 Dock Street. Um, if you're not familiar for that location, it's right on the Y as you would go down towards the Naked Turtle. Mm-hmm. So we're right on that. Near the train station. Yep, absolutely. Across the street from the train station. You can walk in any time, uh, visit, visit with any of our accountants. Scheduling appointments, great. You can reach us at 518-563-1600. Um, What kind of, of, and just so, I mean, accounting is accounting and I think we all have an understanding, but what, where, where would you guys really provide the most value to people or different services you offer? Full service accounting firm. We do everything from, um, audits, 
reviews, compilations. Um, we do tax, we do payroll, we do bookkeeping. We do just about everything. We can. There isn't much out there. I mean, if something's too complex, we can refer you out to someone who may be an expert in it. Um, but we do have a good mixture of multidisciplinary we, people. My dad's been there for just under 50 years. We have other people that have been there that have been practicing CPAs for quite a bit of time. One of our CPAs is an estate uh, in state and trust certified. Um, it has different uh, designation yeah. on top of her CPA license. So she's a great wealth of knowledge if you have any estate or um, trust concerns or anything like that. Uh, yeah, we just do just about everything. There shouldn't be much that we can do, especially in this town. I, don't, I think we could do just about anything that, that's going on here. And, here. And, and here we are sitting in March 23rd. So, t- <laughs> so I'm, I'm honored that you gave me you know an hour of your time in the middle of the heat of tax season. And things yep. slowing down, you're getting through, you uh, still got quite a ways to yeah. go before you're out. <laughs> I think that the, with the tax changes, a lot of people are, are doing the let's just procrastinate and wait. So we, there's still a lot of people to bring their stuff in, but we, we've been chipping at it away. You know, we've definitely stay on top of it. Um, we can take on new clients. If you still have, do not have an account or looking to change, you can still come to us this year. We will, we are still accepting new clients. Um, but awesome. Awesome. Well, Forrest, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Uh, fellow golfer, Rotarian, yes, out this year. An, an entrepreneur, and look at me. I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you for sales advice down the road, <laughs> and and an accountant for Alexander Edwards and Company. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and also, don't forget, we are sponsored by Open Gate Farmstead. Their uh, simple principle: happy animals make the healthiest and tastiest product. And if you reach out to them on social media and you say, hey, I listen to the, the, uh, the Gumption podcast, uh, they're going to take a dollar off your first order of eggs. I'm and they're really good. On that one too. Yeah, do it, man. Do it. They're real good eggs. And if you're lucky, and I don't know if they want me saying this, but I'm going to put it out there. They have duck eggs occasionally. Those are good. Dude, those I are got real them. good. It's like he, he he's I was like I was kind of like hesitant. I'm like, what is a duck egg gonna taste like? He's like, just imagine an egg with a half a stick of butter in it. That's what a duck egg tastes <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, it's bigger and it's more flavorful. And it, man, it's a duck egg. Yeah, I love what they're doing, and I love this uh, sort of farm to table initiative that's happening in the Champlain Valley. I love it. So, Open Gate Farmstead, sponsor of the Stories of Gumption podcast, where we're talking with entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and just really really impressive people. Thanks again for Forrest Edwards. Thank you for having me. We'll see you next time, everybody.